Nehemiah chapter 9. Only four verses this morning. And then next week we'll get into this confession and prayer and praise of the people. But this is a result of them reading the scripture. Their hunger for the word of God. And as a result of Ezra reading from the Old Testament, the people wanted to continue the reading, even after the feast had ceased. So chapter 9 and verse 1 of Nehemiah says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and dust on their heads. Then those Israelites from Hebrew lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers and they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God then Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buniah, Sherebiah, Benaiah, Chaniah stood on the stairs of the Levites and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Father, help us to understand today the historical implications of what happened when they read the Word of God, how it moved them. Lord, help us to make right application for us today. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we read this passage, a short, short section of Scripture, of what these symbols meant and what that means for us today. Father, I pray that we're not going to go through this passage just as another formality, another Sunday morning worship. But God, that, that we would understand it, we would apply it, and that we would see the significance how it relates to the overall revelation in the Bible. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. Um, this is a passage that I've got to admit that um, I struggled with and pondered on and tried to make it relevant for our church in this dispensation because Israel was a different dispensation. It was a different economy. It was a theocracy. It uh, was under the covenant of Moses. We're no longer under that covenant. We're not a theocracy. We're not in a land that God has promised. We're a universal church. We're the bride of Christ. 
And yet we're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so this is inspired by God, and it's a historical inspiration of what happened after they kept the three feasts on that seventh month. There was the Feast of Trumpets that began that festival month. And then after the Feast of Trumpets was the Feast of um, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And then the final feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. And that feast had ended two days earlier. And there was no injunction in the law that told them to continue to assemble to read the word of God. This was a voluntary, compuls- not compulsory, I'm sorry, it was a, a, a spontaneous reaction of the assembly. And so even though we're not observing any of those feasts today, we can tell ourselves in a spiritual sense, every one of them has been fulfilled. We are assembling to read God's word. We just read from the book of Hebrews that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, symbolically showing us that Christ has entered into the true Holy of Holies once and for all. So we are spiritually enjoying that festival and feast. The Feast of Tabernacles, we're told that during the Millennial Kingdom that that feast actually will be reinstated. But it's a reminder of God's provision through the wilderness. And I think I'm not stretching it too far to say that many of us have gone through the wilderness in a spiritual sense where we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from at times. Unless you were just blessed with a silver spoon, I don't think many of us were. I was sharing with, I think, Brendan. No, maybe I wasn't. I don't know. i got too many kids, and I don't know who I'm talking to half the time. One of them, Tracy and I, when we were married, we lived in a one-room cabin that was not much bigger than this area right here. We paid $50 a month for our rent. We had no electric bill. We had no water bill. Because we had no running water. I think I was paid $500 a month. That was what I got paid. And we had a surplus. We had no vehicle. We had no car insurance. I had no health insurance because I was healthy. <laughs> Still don't have any health insurance, but God's watching over me. But I think about those days when we lived so simply. And any time we had a need, we just simply went to the Lord in prayer. I went off to divinity school, and we lived in a house not much bigger than our one-room cabin, and we had two kids and one on the way. I was working a part-time job, full-time in school, trying to make the Olympic trials, and my wife was sacrificing, and God always provided 
So we can have our own Feast of Tabernacles and we can go back through our history and we can say, you remember when God did this? You remember when we didn't have such and such and God just provided for it? And those kind of memories and those kind of walks through the history of what God has done should have that same kind of effect on our lives that we just want to assemble together and just continue to read God's Word because God's Word is so good and because it teaches us so much. And as they read God's Word, they begin to get under deeper conviction of the way they were to live their lives. And they must have read some of the portions of the law about God's design for the nation of Israel to be a separate people, that they were a special treasure to God above all the people on the earth, and that God instructed Abraham to look for a wife for his son Isaac, not among the ladies of Canaan, but you go back to the land and you find one for my own family because she's not to be one from this Canaanite culture. And when Jacob needed a bride, they sent him back to Haran where he met his bride. And God continually did this throughout the nation of Israel. He protected them when they went down into Egypt and they lived isolated from the Egyptians in the land that God had provided for them there. And they were a separate and unique people. And as that separate and unique covenant people of God, God brought all those plagues on Pharaoh and the entire world knew that the Egyptians were serving the wrong gods because all of those plagues were on the gods of Egypt and that the one true Yahweh, Elohim, was the God of the universe. And this was Israel's unique role in the Old Testament, that all nations might come to know the one true God. And as they read their scripture, the Torah, the prophets, they began to understand that we have violated this principle over and over and over again. And according to the Deuteronomic law, we were to be scattered and dispersed among the nations so that we might return back to our God and be God's unique special people. And now God has opened a window in history through Cyrus the sovereign over the Persian Empire and has given a decree in 539 for them to go back and to rebuild their temple, which Solomon dedicated to the one true God. And that temple was to be a witness to all nations. And you read Solomon's prayer and he says, the stranger, the foreigner, when he comes to know the one true God, May he come to this temple and acknowledge who you are, Lord. And so the Israelites back in Nehemiah's day have realized that we have missed the mark. We are to be a separate and unique people. And God has always desired a separate people. 
The church in America, I think, has been told a lie. That lie is that we can reach a lost world by becoming more like the lost world. And our churches have become nothing but a place for entertainment. Our preaching is watered down and lukewarm. And we've advocated the Bible's authority for philosophy, for self-help improvements, for steps that will make you a better person and have a better self-esteem. We've bought into all of the lies of what it means to, to, to build a church. We've told ourselves that we need to build programs rather than build disciples. And God's method has never changed. God has always desired a separate people, different from the world. We are to do all things without murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. Why? So that we might shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation holding forth the word of truth. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, I have got a promise for you, but I don't want you to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't take on their traditions. Don't take on their mentality. Don't take on their philosophies. For what communion does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial and you are the temple of the living God and I will dwell in you and you will be my people and I will be your God. Then Paul quotes another Old Testament principle and he applies it to the New Testament church. He says, therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughter, saith the Lord. And then he runs right into the next chapter, having therefore these promises. Let us purge ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Our churches and our lives need to be holy, separate, and sanctified lives. I don't want to put us under the law. We are under grace. But does grace abound just because we sin more and more may it never be how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it and so these people they confessed they stood they got rid of their iniquities and they read from the book of the law on on that final day the priest stood up and they cried out to the lord God has always desired a separate people. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. Before Joshua took the people into the promised land, he was instructed, you will not make marriages with them, nor give your daughters to their sons, nor take daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons from following me. They will serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, destroying you suddenly. But this is what you will do. You will destroy their altars. You will break down their images. You will cut down their groves. You will burn their images with fire. You remember what the church at Ephesus did after they heard the gospel? They brought all of their books of magic and sorcery and they piled them up and they burned them. 
When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he says, you have turned from idols to serve the true and living God. We are his church. We are his people. The New Testament church is referred to as the bride of Christ. We are his bride. And what does God desire for his bride? What is it? He desires us to be chaste to be holy, to be pure. Paul wrote the Corinthians again and he said, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. There's some jealousy that's actually good, isn't it? God was jealous for his people and he didn't like the harlotry that went on spiritually. As a husband, I am jealous over my wife. I don't want other dudes looking at her and I don't want her looking at other men and same for her. She's jealous. Why? Because I have made a covenant with this lady that I will love her, that she is my wife, period. That's a good jealousy, isn't it? Well, God had a good jealousy, and Paul says, I have espoused you, and I have a jealousy over you, my people, for I have betrothed you to one husband, which is Jesus, and why did he do that? That I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Even the word church, that word, the Greek word ek, Preposition means to come out. Kaleo, kalasia means to be called. The very word we are a church means that we are called out of the world and to be separate from them. We're not to be anything like them. We're to be loving. We're to be kind. We're to be forgiving. We're not to count up wrongs with one another. The world is good at that. The world is good at vindication and vindictiveness. We are not to be like them. We're to have short memories of our wrongs and long memories of grace and forgiveness toward one another. This is God's people. We are called out. Israel was now given to captivity and now they are realizing that God was righteous in the judgment and now they're back in their land and God forbid that they should go back into yoking up with pagan systems of the Old Testament. So the main purpose of the law that God had given in the Old Testament, the main purpose that God had given that holy and just law, one of the purposes, not the main purpose, but one of them, obviously, was to show that the Hebrews were morally and spiritually near or intimately acquainted with God. Our role is the exact same. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy, sanctified nation. We are a special treasure. What are we supposed to do as God's people in the New Testament? We are, show, we are to show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now the reading of scripture reveals where we fall short of what God wants. And this is what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, when they read the scripture, it brought an awareness of how they were falling short. Now, all of us know that we are saved by faith. We are to walk by faith and we're to grow in faith. But it doesn't happen without the word of God. This is the instrument that God has given you and I to grow in our faith. And when we read it, it 
exposes areas that we need to further surrender to Christ. And as they read this, they did three things. They fasted, they put on sackcloth, and they put dirt on themselves. Now, what does each one of these things symbolize? Well, the fasting, I think we can understand that because that was still something practiced in the New Testament. Jesus instructs us to fast. So fasting is typically the abstinence from food for a period of time. But in the Old Testament, it was to demonstrate affliction. It was to demonstrate sorrow and mourning and grief. In Joel, they had just been ravaged by these different plagues because of their disobedience. And the prophet Joel says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart. God's always been about the heart. It's not the fasting. But he also says, with fasting and with weeping and mourning. But he says, it's not the physical things that I'm interested in. Now the prophet says, so rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God. For your God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and great in kindness. That is our God. And that's what fasting commemorates. That's what fasting symbolizes, that God, I am totally dependent on your goodness, your graciousness, and your mercy. So they, after the reading, they fasted. They put on sackcloth. Now, what does sackcloth represent? Sackcloth is used many times in the Old Testament. It was a rough, goat, hairy garment that just made you uncomfortable. And uh, when, I, when I was studying this, I, I, I just kept thinking about how we like to sometimes beat ourselves up when we've sinned. And we just don't, it's, it's hard for us to understand grace, isn't it? And, and just to accept grace. And, and the, the putting on of sackcloth was to make yourself just miserable. Well, I, I've sinned, I've blown it. So God, I don't, I don't want to be comfortable. I just want to be miserable. I want to be, every time I move, I want to just get this scratchy garment all over me. But that's kind of what this, this garment was to do. It was a rough garment, but it, it reminded the people of the gravity of their sin. And I, I don't think we need to do penance today. I don't think we need to, to grovel before God to get cleansing and forgiveness. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all His unrighteousness. So how do we apply that to, to the church today? Well, I, I think there needs to still be this deep regret in your heart over the sin that we've committed. There needs to be an understanding of the gravity of sin and how it grieves our God. That's what our motive should be, is that our sin grieves our Heavenly Father. And so the sackcloth was to remind them of this grief. When Joseph was slain, supposedly by the beast, and the brothers came back and showed the, the coat to their father, the father took off his robes, and the father put on the sackcloth because he felt such remorse. He felt such mourning. He felt such loss. And that's the way we should feel about sin. We should feel that we have lost that precious relationship with our God. Now, we don't have to stay there, and we don't have to stay there long. Thank God for that. 
the putting earth on the head. This was a sign of shame and disgrace. I'm, I'm shocked at how little shame and how little disgrace there is in the church of the living God over sin. We dismiss it. We make light of it. And we even put people back into positions who are disqualified. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go around putting a scarlet letter on people or beating them up or having a club and, and just taking the Bible and say, you know, you're, 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 you're useless now. God can't use you. But at the same time, there should be a sense of embarrassment. There should be a sense that this is not who I want to be. And this is what was symbolized by putting dirt on the head. Joshua did this at the Battle of Ai when his people just had this incredible routing at the Battle of Jericho. God was so faithful. God was so good. Walls come tumbling down. And now this little tiny town of Ai, they run with their tails tucked between their legs and men of Israel die. And Joshua says, this is embarrassing. This isn't right. This isn't who my God is. And I feel embarrassed. I feel shame. God, what have we done? And I love what God says. He says, Joshua, get up and quit grumbling around. You've got sin in the camp and deal with it. So all of these things were to remind them of their sin, the disgrace, the mourning, the shame that it brought. Now, the Bible is the tool that God uses in our lives to do this, isn't it? It's not some secret that we have to come up and say, well, God, how are you going to change me? God, how are you going to transform me? God uses the word. That's what they did. They read the scripture for a fourth of the day. Their next step was to separate themselves. But I want to just give you, before I leave that point, I want to just give you two Old Testament examples of where the word of God was proclaimed and how it had a radical impact on the people of Israel and on a pagan city as well. The first one is the king named Josiah. He was from the lineage of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had prophesied over him that the Babylonians were going to come and take all of his treasures away. Well, Hezekiah didn't like that. He says, well, at least it's not going to happen in my day. And they stopped reading of the Torah. Well, a grandson named Josiah becomes the king, and he tells Hilkiah, the high priest, he says, I want to go back to worship God. I, I want us to cleanse this temple out. And they're cleansing the temple, and Hilkiah finds the book of the law. Hadn't been read for generations. They take it to the king, and the king starts to read the law of God, and he is under conviction, and he tears his clothes. He rents his clothes. He realizes that they're under God's judgment, and he humbled himself. And then he says to the prophetess, he says, what do we need to do? And it comes back this message, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself to the Lord when you heard the words of the law spoken against this place and the inhabitants thereof, that it was going to become a desolation and curse. You have rent your clothes. You have wept before me. I have heard what you have prayed. 
and I will save you, saith the Lord. So God's word has this powerful effect. The other instance in the Old Testament was the preaching of Jonah. The people of Nineveh believed God. What did they do? They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth and they sat in ashes from the greatest to the least of them. So in the New Testament, the word of God is our tutor to bring us to Christ. It shows us the mind of Christ. It shows us the heart of Christ. It shows us the forgiveness of Christ. So the law is our tutor and we are to humble ourselves. We are to draw nigh unto God and the promise is that he will draw nigh unto us. And then James goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted. This is the New Testament. This is New Testament. Be afflicted. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. You don't hear that preached on the televangelist, do you? Stop being so happy. Get the smile off your face. Put, put some seriousness, put some gravity to your life. I'm reading through the book of Ecclesiastes and I'm just I'm over and over just being, being hit on how lack of seriousness that I have many times for the Christian life. Now, I'm not, you all know me and, and, and I can be a goofball, right? And, and I can get silly at times. But the book of Ecclesiastes, I read it this morning, it says, get out of that, that house of just joyful giddiness and rather go over to the house of mourning because those are the people who are thinking about the reality of life. Life is, is, is short and there's, there's people around us that need to hear the gospel message. And, and that's what they did at Nineveh. And and, and we don't have to, to go through. There's one high priest, right? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't need, you don't need anything. You don't need any ceremonies. You've got it all complete for you in Jesus. So where do I go? What do we do? Colossians tells us this. You and I have been united with Christ. Every guilt that you feel, every shame, every embarrassment, every woe is me, oh, I blew it again. The cross is totally sufficient. Faith is totally sufficient. You don't need some kind of class to go to to get a better self-image or self-worth. You don't need steps to go through. You don't need training. All you and I need is the cross. That's, that's a message that's being lost. The cross is so powerful. Look at the cross is faithful enough to keep you from living in sin. We don't have to continue in sin, do we? The grace of God is sufficient not just to save. The grace of God is sufficient to keep us. We are saved by faith alone. We grow by faith alone. We have victory by faith alone. When you and I are tempted... I don't need to go through some kind of process. I need to go through faith and say, by faith, I know that that sin and my old self is nailed to the cross. 
I, Patrick, no longer live. Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is where victory is found. And the book of Colossians goes on to say that Christ is so sufficient. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you have been raised with Christ, that if is in the indicative mood, it's not questioning it. It's since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand. Set your affections on things on the above, not on the things on this earth, for you died. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians goes on to say that we have been forgiven some of our trespasses. I misquoted that, didn't I? He has forgiven us all. All, every one of them. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's what Nehemiah said. How did he do that? We've got the word having appears three times. We are alive with Christ. The first having, having forgiven all trespasses. That's why I'm alive with Christ, because he doesn't see my sin. It's gone. How did he do that? having wiped out the handwriting of ordinances. That's the law. He wiped it out. And he goes on to describe that law. It was contrary to us. He took it out of the way. How did he do that? Having nailed it to the cross. We take our sin, we take our guilt, we take our shame, and we take it to the cross and we nail it and we live it, leave, leave it with Jesus. So many Christians are defeated by a past that's already been dealt with on Calvary. True repentance. We see acts of true repentance here. They separated themselves. This was a voluntary act of contrition, removing all foreign practices. Now, in the Hebrew language, it is translated very, very well in the King James, the New King James, and any other literal translation by the reciprocal pronoun, or the reflexive pronoun, rather, the word themselves. This was a voluntary act. The Word of God had prompted them. And it says that they separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, literally, it says all zarach which means all foreign seed. Anything that was anything that was foreign, anything that didn't belong to the house of Israel. So it wasn't their marriages here. Ezra had already dealt with that in the book of Ezra. So this is talking about philosophies, worship, customs that have entered into the Israelite lifestyle. The church, we've incorporated worldly forms of worship, We've incorporated philosophy, fleshly appetites in an effort to please people and grow bigger churches. And in so doing, we have displeased God. Paul appeals to this Old Testament law with a New Testament principle. And I'll read it again for you. Do not be unequally loped together with unbelievers. For what communion does light have with darkness? What fellowship does righteousness with unrighteous? What cord, concord does Christ have with Belial? What part does a believer have with an infidile? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You are the temple of the living God. Wherefore, come out and be separate. 
So the next thing that they did, this act of true repentance, was to confess sin and iniquity. It says they stood and they confessed their sins and their iniquities to their fathers. The word confess, it means to acknowledge. The Hebrew word confess is pronounced yada, and there's a stem in the Hebrew language that means back and forth, okay? I'm giving you a little bit of Hebrew lesson. So the word yada means to throw or to cast, and it's used in a verbal stem that means to throw and to cast back and forth. Do you understand what confession is then? God is showing us. He's revealing to us, and it's going back and forth. God, you're showing me what I've done, and I'm agreeing with you. The Greek word for confess is hama, which means the same, and legao, which means to speak. So when I am confessing, I am concurring with what God has said about my action, and I am agreeing with God. That's what true confession it is. It's not rationalizing. It's not saying, but, or if. It's acknowledging what I did and that I take personal responsibility for it and I give it back to God. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall find mercy. So God wants us to confess The New Testament church, I believe we have lost this wonderful blessing. When I was in divinity school, there was another school much farther north, way up in Chicago, called Wheaton College. And at that time, Wheaton College was experiencing something radical. They were experiencing a revival like no other Christian campus had ever seen. They were having chapel services. And student after student after student was getting up and confessing to fellow students. And professors were confessing their sin. And that whole school, God just swept through it with a sweeping word and work of God. And there's something about confession, public confession. Not that we have to go through all of our dirt and go through all of our laundry because none of that is necessary. But what we do need to acknowledge to one another We are to confess our sin one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayers of righteous men availeth much. So let's don't miss out on what God can do through confession. And what does separation and confession lead to? It leads to really genuine worship. You can't come into this place this morning unseparated from a world and having your foot in the world and come in here and worship a holy God. You can't come in here without confessing sin to the Lord and have a heart that's free to worship. What does this do? It sets us free. Oh, to be able to worship a God that you know you're forgiven. I thank the Lord that we have the communion every month because it's a time that I can take my sin and take it serious. And I can analyze my own heart before I take the Lord's Supper. But what it led to in them was worship, homage, bowing down to a supreme being. And God is seeking people to worship him. True worship must be in spirit and in truth. When Jesus said that to the woman of Samaria, he meant by spirit, it means it's an individual heart. 
And not only is it an individual heart, it is an undivided heart. By truth, Jesus meant that our sin must be confessed. I've got to worship God in truth. And secondly, it also means that I've got to worship God with all of his holy attributes extolled. So where do I want to leave this this morning? I just want to remind us all that God is always looking for a people who are separate and unique, that he can work through to reach a lost world. A good place to begin might be Psalm 139, which says, Search me, O God, and try my heart. Know me and show me if there's any wicked way in me. Do I lack genuine contrition? Am I really believing that the cross is sufficient to take all of my sin? Do I believe that the cross is sufficient by faith to have victory over all of my sin in the future? Does my life reflect a friendship with God or does it reflect a friendship with the world? Am I enjoying worship as a glorious expression of a grateful heart for God's cleansing and victory over my sin? Or is it dry, ritualistic, and routine? Humility leads to separation. Separation, then comes confession. Both of these leads to a restoration which is displayed in a heart full of joy and worship. So God wants us. He wants North Valley Bible Church. We don't need to have some kind of fancy evangelism program or fancy discipleship program. I'm convinced that if we are separated people living wholly into God, God's going to take care of the rest. Doesn't mean that those things aren't helpful, aren't necessary, but this must be a priority. Let's pause in prayer. Father God, thank you for this short passage of scripture. Thank you for the example that God's people voluntarily called for an assembly. They wanted the word of God read. And when it was read, they were moved with contrition and they put on the symbolic acts. Well, God, you're not looking for symbolic acts today. We're living in a new covenant. You're looking for hearts that are broken, that'll fast, that'll mourn, that feel the shame and the guilt. And God, this morning, we're not going to grovel in our past. We're going to take our past to the cross of Jesus. And we're going to thank you that all of the law was fulfilled in Christ and that you've nailed it. And that we're united with you in your death. And in the same way, we are united with you in your resurrection to live victoriously. Father, today, God, I pray that you'll restore our love for the Savior and it will just overflow in a worship you, a worship of you that, that doesn't just end in church, but God, it's a worship that just affects all the people around us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.